you here, and we do hope that you would experience the welcome of our church today as we gather. As a church, each week we gather together to worship God and to sit under the Word of God, namely the Bible, which we believe teaches us how to live in this world. And so this morning we are together going to continue our journey walking through this book verse by verse in the book of James. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do in some form, maybe physical or digital, would you take a moment right now to open up to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 is where we're going to be spending time together this morning. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It is my hope, my desire, that when you leave this morning, you have a better understanding of James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. A better understanding of God and of yourself and what it looks like for us to be Christians in the world. I was recently gathered together at a conference with a bunch of pastors, and one of the pastors stood up and said this thing that I immediately wrote down, and I knew as soon as I heard it, I thought, I'm stealing that. Um, I know the Bible says, thou shalt not steal, but it's an okay kind of stealing. Uh, and the, the, the pastor said, um, your talk talks, but your walk talks too. Your, your talk talks, but your walk talks too. In other words, the way in which you live your life also speaks. And in the, in the book of James... As we're walking through this summer together, James is sort of obsessed with this notion that while it is important for us to articulate our beliefs, it is, it is so vital and critical if we're going to call ourselves Christians to understand that we cannot just talk the talk, but we must walk the talk as well. We gather together as a church and we sing songs of great belief. We recite the creeds, the historic traditional beliefs of the Christian church. We hold these things and sometimes Christians can gather together in spaces like this and sing those songs, recite those things. We can nod and amen to particular points in the sermon that we enjoy. And then we can deny that we believe any of that in the, by the time we get to the parking lot. By the time we get home, we can praise the Lord that our car does not have a Christian bumper sticker on the back of it for fear of what someone might think about Christians if they were to look at the way that we treat others on the road. And that stuff can happen from Sunday end of service just to getting home. James wants us to practice God's word, to walk our talk. And last week, if you were here when Austin was teaching, Austin was in James 1. And remember, James 1 functions as an introduction to the rest of the book. And James 1, the end of that book, is, the end of that chapter, is all about the importance of regularly receiving God's word and then rehearsing it, as he put, or living it out. It's, it's knowing the Bible and then living the kinds of lives that when people look at our lives, they would say, yeah, that makes sense. Because they say they believe that, and I'm watching them live that. We must read the Bible and then live like we believe the Bible. So much of James is about this. 
And so this morning, we are going to talk explicitly about how we see people and how we treat people because the way that we behave reveals what we believe. The way we behave shows the world what it is that we believe. When I was a kid, I would wake up on Saturday morning and I would sit in front of our television. We didn't have a remote control when I was little and we had a dial television that only had about three stations and you watched whatever they put in front of you on Saturday morning. And I would sit there in the morning and I would jump between channel like 44 and channel 2 and there were like only three or four channels. But, uh, but that's what I watched. My kids grow up in a different world. They now are entertained, rather than having just a few channels, right, they have an unlimited number of channels, including YouTube channels. While I had favorite television shows, my children have favorite YouTube channels. Anybody else, in, in, anyone else by show of hands have a favorite YouTube channel? Does anybody have that? Okay, yeah, a good chunk of you. My kids love, and I've grown to love, a YouTube channel that's run by a guy named Mark Rober. Anybody know who Mark Rober is, by show of hands? Mark Rober, some of you? He's great. He used to be a, an engineer, used to work at NASA, now runs a YouTube channel that's about kind of engineering and children's projects, and it's really awesome. But, but uh, 10 years ago... Um, I was talking to my kids about my sermon this morning and talking to them about James 2. And, and, and my son Dietrich uh, pointed out to me this, this great Mark Rober video where Mark Rober um, was born with a lot of facial hair. So much so, um, not like an excessive amount like that you would, but just a lot. He grows a lot of hair in his face. Some people can't do that. He can, especially in the eyebrow area. And he would very naturally have a unibrow. And he was interested in what would happen if he allowed that unibrow to be fully filled out and if he went into a store and he talked to people with this just massive unibrow and he wanted to see how long they would talk to him, how they would treat him, how they'd interact with him. And then he, he did that experiment and then he goes back into the store um, and with other people and he, uh, he, he trims that so he has no unibrow and the whole video is about how do people treat people with unibrows? And his conclusion is that if you have a unibrow, people are going to talk to you less. And his second conclusion is that if you approach a group of middle school, high school girls with a unibrow, not only are they going to talk to you less, but when you walk away from them, they're going to look for a way to get you on camera. It is no surprise to any of us that when we are out in the world, we treat people differently based on the way they look. That happens everywhere. We even have a famous saying, never judge a book by its cover. And yet I know that I'm sitting, I'm standing in a room full of people who have bought books explicitly because they liked its cover. What would the world look like if Christians were known for treating each and every person with dignity, honor, grace, and respect? 
What would the world look like if Christians were very different than the world in how they treated people? Well, the hope of the text we will look at today is all about that importance. And so as I invited you already to turn to James chapter 2, we will read the first 13 verses before we unpack it together. Again, you should have had it by now. This is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. This is what James says to us, to them, but for us this morning. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there. Or sit on the floor over by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This morning as we open up James 2, 1 through 13 together we're going to talk about favoritism. And we're going to do that in five ways. So if you're taking notes, this is the outline for what we're going to do this morning. Five things on favoritism. The first, we will talk about what is it? What is favoritism? What is it? Secondly, what does it look like? What does it look like? Third, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? Fourth, what are its consequences? 
What are its consequences? And fifth and finally, what must we do? What must we do? So on favoritism, if you're writing notes, five points this morning. What is it? What does it look like? What's wrong with it? What are its consequences? And what must we do? Let's begin first with what is it? In James chapter 2, verse 1, James opens up by saying, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking here to brothers and sisters, Christians who believe in Jesus. And he says, You must not show favoritism. Now, the word for favoritism literally means to receive the face. That's what the word favoritism means in Greek, the language in which the New Testament is mostly written. Uh, to receive the face. Right, to, 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 it's an external picture of someone. He says, you, you ought not to look at people and receive people just based on how they look. Here's my definition of favoritism, what James is getting at. James is saying that favoritism is to favor some people over others because of wealth, social standing, position, Authority, popularity, looks, or influence. To show favoritism is to receive the face, to look at someone, to, to make a judgment of them, and then to go, yes, you, yes to you, just based on how I see you, and then no to you, based, you get this kind of thing, you get that kind of thing, right? And so James says, of all the people in the world, the people who must not do this are those who say, say they believe in Jesus, if you say you believe in Jesus, you must not show favoritism. James does not mince his words. Christians are not to do this. We are not to look at people and treat them differently purely because of how they look. We'll tease this out more as we move forward. So that's what it is. Get in your mind a picture of maybe the ways big and small where you may be tempted to look at someone and go, yeah, I'm going to treat that person differently than that person just because of the way they look. So that's what favoritism is. Second, what does it look like? Well, normally here as a good preacher, I want to come up with an illustration. This morning, I don't have to. James does it for us. James decides that he's going to hold up the mirror to us as Christians by giving us an illustration, a, a sort of story of two guests who arrive in the church. He says this in James 2, verses 2 through 4. He says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring. So you have a guest that comes to church. And that word for gold ring actually it renders a gold-fingered. Suppose a gold-fingered man, right? Someone with a lot of rings on their fingers. In the ancient world, wearing a lot of rings on your fingers was a sign of great wealth. So suppose a gold-fingered man shows up wearing fine clothes and... A poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. So James wants to show you what it looks like by saying, a man in really nice clothes, a gold-fingered man, very clear. Man, that person's got money. Did you see the car they pulled up in? That kind of situation. And then you've got a, another man who shows up in filthy clothes. And that word filthy doesn't just mean kind of disheveled. It means 
absolutely filthy. It means smelly. It's the same kind of idea of the moral repugnance that we have because of our own sin. This is an image of a kind of really disheveled, awful smelling, torn clothes. And I'm not talking about cool ripped jeans. I'm not going to talk about hip ideas of what it looks like to look kind of like, I, 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 you know, to wear oversized shirts that are ripped up. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a very clear and obvious, this person is really, really destitute. And, and James says, imagine they both show up, and then to one, the one who clearly has money, who's used to sort of nice things, you say to that man, hey, I got a nice shady spot for you underneath one of these easy ups. Hey, we got a special chair for you. This is a nice chair. It's more comfortable than others. Hey, we hope you have a wonderful experience. Here, sit here in our gathering. We hope that this is a wonderful thing for you. And then we turn to the other man and say, yeah, you sit wherever. Go sit on the ground. Go stand somewhere. Go be away from people. You kind of stink. You, 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 you probably are fine sitting on the floor because it looks like you don't care that much. If we do that, James says, that is showing favoritism. And James says that if you do that, if you do that, you have discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Now, the picture of a judge with an evil thoughts, as rendered in this text, is a judge that receives bribes. I imagine that all of us, all of us here, would stand up and say, if there is a judge who makes decisions based on receiving a bribe, that judge is a bad judge. I imagine none of us here would be okay having a judge that said, whoever gives me the most money is who I will give justice to. We would say, that's a bad judge. And James says, you are acting like an unjust judge when you treat people like that. So that's what it looks like. It looks like you making a decision and treating two people who come into your gathering and treating them very differently based on how they look. Now, what's wrong with it? My third point, what's wrong with it? Verses 5 through 7. James then talks about what's wrong with this. He says, listen. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Now, the word for poor here in James 5 means more than just in poverty. It means more than just a lack of material wealth. For here, the word includes the idea of being poor in spirit, poor in finances, poor in friendship. In other words, what James is saying is, hasn't God come into the world in the person of Jesus and looked around at the people that the world looks down upon? And hasn't Jesus chosen those who are poor in all kinds of ways? And hasn't God, through Christ, made those people rich in and through faith as members of the kingdom? God chooses the people that we would not choose. He chooses the people that we look down on. He chooses the people who are poor in friendship, poor in, in shame and guilt. They feel terribly poor in isolation, 
poor in poverty, with material wealth, poor in all kinds of ways, God shows up, he looks around, and he does not choose the people we would choose. No, he chooses those who the world looks down upon. So you may lack resources in this life, but if you have Jesus, you are rich in the kingdom of God. You may be poor amongst your friends, poor in the city of Santa Monica, poor in Los Angeles in all kinds of ways, but if you have Jesus, you are rich in faith and you are a member of God's kingdom. Jesus showed up and he doesn't look at the external, he looks at your heart. Which means he can see your heart. That's what he's looking at. Don't imp- you can't impress him externally. He's looking at your heart. If Jesus did that, if he showed up and he chose the people we wouldn't choose and he looks at the heart, he looks through the external. If he did that, how can we be Christians and not be like Christ? How can we call ourselves Christians and not seek to do what Christ did? What's more harmful to the kingdom than a group of Christians who claim, I follow Jesus, I want to be like Jesus, and live lives that just look just like the world, that show favoritism just like the world? James says you are dishonoring the poor when you reduce them to their appearance. And if that isn't bad news enough, James says that you are, you're making it worse because you are blindly honoring the rich and they're the ones who are exploiting you. You treat the rich with great reverence and they're mocking you. They're making fun of you. They're taking you to court. Mistreating people based on their looks, based on their appearance, based on their race, any of that looks nothing like Jesus. The New York Times columnist and writer David Brooks became a Christian just a few years ago. And he, I listened to him on a podcast recently talk about how he um, was surprised when he became a Christian because he would walk into the church and, and he, he would come into the Christian spaces. He was looking for an encounter with God. And what he found was a lot of people who were more interested that he was there. And he thought that was very strange. Because he was kind of known. Sort of had been on TV a little bit. Was sort of writing in the paper. People kind of knew who he was. So here he is walking into the church looking for God and finding himself amongst a group of people who say they're Christian who seem to be more interested that there is a celebrity in their midst. When I moved to Los Angeles, this is going to date me. This is how old I am. When I moved to L.A., one of the first things I heard was I heard about the church that Jessica Simpson attended. (laughs) That's, That's true. That's what was it. It's like, do you know that church? Jessica Simpson goes there. Some of you are like, who's that? Today, Christians will talk about the church that Justin Bieber goes to. 
We are obsessed with celebrity. We live in a culture obsessed with celebrity. We love fame. If a famous person showed up on Sunday morning, there would be a, a buzz in the room as there sometimes has been. And, and there's, there would be a sort of like, ooh, I know I'm supposed to hear and worship Jesus, but, but I know Jesus is here, but they're here. We'd be tempted to give that person special honor. We got to get him to come back. We got to get him to give. We got to get him to stick around. Them, not that other person over there, them. When we do that, when we elevate fame, celebrity, rich, riches, race, any of that, when we elevate that above Christ, we are denying the name of Jesus. We are denying the grace of God. Rich and poor must be welcomed. There can be no favoritism. Here's my rule for you. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is what I want you to do, although we'll get to what we're going to do in a minute. But here's something I want you to see. Here's how I want you to see people. We must treat every person who shows up here on Sunday morning either as someone that Christ lives in or someone that Christ died for. That's it. Every person that's here today, either Christ lives in or Christ died for, that is to be the way that we treat others. That is seeing others through the eyes of grace. Grace is the great equalizer because it declares that we are all equally sinful and all equally in need of a Savior. Our lens is not merit our lens is not class. Our lens is not money. Our lens is not race. Our lens is not age. I don't care if you show up on Sunday morning with a MAGA hat on or you show up on Sunday morning with a giant, uh, a giant pro-choice uh, a t-shirt. I don't care your political opinions. I don't care how you express. When you come into the church, we are going to treat you like you're made in the image of God because we are Christians. If we say we believe in the grace of God, we must relate to people based on grace. And Christ came to destroy the walls of hostility between us. We cannot rebuild them. Our church, this church, must reflect the kingdom and not the culture. James says favoritism is Sin. Fourth, what are its consequences? Verses 8 through 13. James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture. Now here James is quoting his brother, Jesus, right? He's not just quoting Jesus, he's quoting the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were 613 laws that could kind of be deduced to really 10. You know them as the Ten Commandments. Jesus steps on the scene and he is often asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus takes them, reduces them to two. Two, one, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And secondly, that you love your neighbor as yourself. James sees this as the royal law. And he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. If you really are loving your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But 
if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Jesus said we are to love God first, we are to love others second, we are to love ourselves third. God, other, self, that's the order. It's in, like that intentionally. And James says that showing favoritism is a way of not loving your neighbor. In other words, favoritism is a sin. And if we do it, he says we are lawbreakers. And then in verse 10 and 11, he says that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, verse 11, that you shall not commit adultery also said, you shall not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. You don't get to stand before God and say, God, I know I committed adultery, but I didn't murder anybody. Am I good? And God says, no. God, I murdered a bunch of people, but I never cheated on my wife. Am I good? God says, no, but notice this. This is in the context of favoritism. See, some of you are going to be like, yeah, murder, that's a big deal. Adultery, that's a big deal. Favoritism, that's small. No, it's not. He puts it right there. James's logic is, if you show favoritism or commit adultery or murder, if you do those things, if you break one part of God's law, you've broken all of God's law, and therefore you are a lawbreaker. Be very clear. Every person here this morning is a lawbreaker. Let me be very clear. This misconception that Christians exist in the world as people who say, we're the good people and the world is the bad people, is nonsense. If you are a Christian, you know firsthand that what makes you a Christian is that you understand you are a lawbreaker and you cannot forgive yourself. And so you throw yourself on the mercy of God who by way of his son Jesus offers you forgiveness and life with him forever. We are all law breakers. You can't break one of God's laws and get to call yourself innocent. And for James, favoritism, it's right there. We must not show favoritism. Yet we do. We do. We do. And so we are law breakers. So fifth, what must we do? What must we do? James says this in verses 12 and 13. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act as though we are going to be judged. See, some of you, I'm afraid that you're going to not hear this. Some of you are going to say, yeah, Trevor, yeah, Pastor Trevor, like, I, I've shown favoritism. That's no big deal. Not true. James says, you're going to be judged. And now some of you are going to go, whoa, 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 wait a second. I thought the whole Christian thing was that I become a Christian and then I don't get judged anymore. That's not true. That's not true at all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all 
appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So you might be confused this morning. Let me give you a little bit of clarity. If you have received Christ, you will not be condemned for your sins. Your work is paid for. But if you've received Christ or not, your, your works will still be judged before God for how you walk and how you talk will still be shown, revealed before our God who is a perfectly good judge. James is shouting at us this morning. How you walk matters. Your talk talks, your walk talks too. And your life should line up with the law that gives freedom, he says. I love that line. The law that gives freedom. He did it last week in the text we look at. The law that, we, that gives freedom. See, many people think that Christian faith is about the restriction of people. I don't want to become a Christian. Too many rules, too many restrictions. But the Bible teaches that God's law is designed for freedom. See, people think Christians don't want freedom. Quite the opposite. We believe that to live according to God's law is the most free way to live. Freedom comes from obeying God, not yourself. And some of you are still learning that lesson. Maybe others of you are ready to hear for the first time that the reason that you have experienced so much pain in your life is because you have been choosing to believe that you'll be most free if you just follow your heart. The Bible says that our heart is deceitful and that the way that we get freedom is by saying, God, we believe and trust that you love us and that you want us to live as we should live because you are our creator. So why does God say no murder? In some sense, freedom. Why does God say no adultery? Well, freedom. I mean, who among you is going to say, no, good marriages are those that are most free when both say, as much adultery as you want. That's insanity. Healthy, strong, good, long-lasting marriages know that, 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 not, that committing to faithfulness may seem like a kind of boundary, but it is the boundary that creates freedom and that adultery destroys it. So James says, if you don't speak and act in a merciful way, if you don't show mercy to people, then you won't get mercy. I just want you to feel the weight of that. If you show favoritism, if you're by not giving mercy to people, that's what he says you're doing, you won't get mercy. Not by God you won't. And then in verse 13, he ends, right, after he says, because judgment without mercy will be, will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And then, then he ends with this, these, just, these four words, these, this reminder, because James is a Christian. His brother lived, died, buried, rose again. He knows 
He knows what it means to be a Christian. James reminds those he's writing to by declaring to them, remember, mercy triumphs over judgment. Can I get an amen? James, when you're saying, James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. You say, James, where does that happen? And James says, it happens through Christ. Christ shows us God's mercy to lawbreakers like us. Christ who died for us. Christ who lives for us. Christ who fills us. Christ who leads us. And if you have tasted the sweet mercy of God, then you must extend it to others. And if you don't extend it to others, maybe it's because you've never tasted it. Let me just finish by landing this in a few key ways. First, I want to say to those of you who are Christians, You cannot show favoritism. You must not show favoritism. This is not a worship service of Jesus if it shows favoritism. Because this will fail to be a Christian worship service if it shows favoritism. We cannot do it. We must repent of it. And we must strive to be and to treat people like the Jesus who saves us. We must change the way we speak and act if we are Christians. Secondly, as a church as a whole, I just want to speak to all of you. When you are here on Sunday mornings, I hope that you're looking for people who are lonely, people who are by themselves, people who other people might want to avoid. Who are you tempted to avoid? Who are we as a church tempted to avoid? Gosh, I hope that we can say before the Lord someday, Lord, it was our desire, and we put into practice the habit of treating everybody as though either you lived in them or you died for them. We must make an effort to break those barriers. And third, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want you to know that you are guilty like the rest of us. And that you will stand before God guilty, a guilty sinner, James says. And God will look at you on that day of judgment. And God will say, if you are still in your sins, He will say, depart from me. I want you to know this morning, if you are not a Christian, you, like me, broke the law but that God sent Jesus to pay the fine. He sent Christ to die, to be guilty for you, so that you could be forgiven by God. And the way to be forgiven, the only way to be forgiven, is to repent of your sins, to confess with your mouth that you believe in Jesus, to receive Him as Lord and Savior to trust in Him and put your faith in Him. And if you do that, you will receive life forever starting today. And if you are interested in doing that or want to know more about that, find anybody here this morning who calls themselves a Christian and they will adjust their whole day to spend time with you. Brothers and sisters, 
Let us talk the talk. But let us walk the talk too. And let us thank God for his mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the ways that our hearts sometimes bend toward showing favoritism. As Christians, Father, we can be fame-obsessed, riches-obsessed. We can be influence-obsessed. We can look just like the world. We can call ourselves Christians and then walk into parties looking for the people that we just inherently think are the most valuable based on how they look. Lord, help us to reflect that we truly believe in Jesus that we treat people the way he treated people, that we look not just through at the face, we don't just receive the external God, but we're looking at people's hearts and we're treating every person as though you either live in them or as though you died for them. Help us to be a merciful people. Expose the areas where we have failed and draw us into greater faithfulness. Help us to be a church that develops a reputation of being people who don't just proclaim with our mouths that you are Lord, but live like we believe that's true. And when we fail, and we fail, God, would you forgive us? And would you renew us? And I want to pray for those who are here this morning who are in their sins, who are lawbreakers, who do not know your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace, and that this morning they would make a decision to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to repent of their sins, to believe in Jesus, seeing him as the one who paid the fine for their guilt so that they might have life with God forever starting today. Lord, thank you for the reminder that we are forgiven if we turn to you, that your mercy triumphs over judgment. Help us be able to please you with our lives. Help us to show the world that we are Christians by the way that we love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.